0: Embargo, by P. E. Rowe Day 1 Fillion had been where Venegar was, physically that is. It didn't mean he understood the man, or what he hoped to accomplish, showing up around the Addis macro-mineral mines with a fleet of warships. It wasn't a desperate move, it was a futile one. There was good reason no one had attempted to enter the system in over four centuries curious move, is it not? Saraswati said, when Phillion became aware of the attempted incursion. I wonder, Phillion said, they look like ordinary warships. It is possible that this vinegar is a very stupid man. Humans do curious things. Or a very smart one, Phillion said. Time will tell. The sight of so many conventional warships at the edge of the system was so novel, Phillion knew it was just a matter of time before Dulcie took an interest as well especially if Venegor did as he was promising to do and entered the system. She was closest to the outer planets. If this Ateran Commodore could do damage against any of them, Dulcie was in the most vulnerable position. Not that Venegor could know such a thing. For the moment, though, he seemed to be parked just outside the system's heliosphere. What do you suppose he's doing out there? Filian asked Saraswathi. If he is smart, as you suggest, he's likely gathering information, the artificial being said. Surviving over thirty years of warfare means, at the very least, these Aterrans have collected much knowledge about modes of kinetic destruction. The debris, which was littered in cloud-like formations throughout the inner half of the system, was much less dense in the outer reaches. But even out there, strikes were certain, and depending on the size and location of the rocks colliding against a ship's hull, entering the system would eventually prove fatal. Fillion of Charis, would you speak? A transmission came through. There was, of course, the usual interference. But the signal was clear enough to see a stern-looking, uniformed figure. Interference permits text only, Fillion wrote back. We are limited by our circumstances here. It was an excuse. To the outside worlds, their situation had been shrouded in mystery for centuries. It was smart policy to keep it that way. Text only. Venegar took nearly an hour to reply doubtless crafting a careful message he hoped would be convincing. It read as follows. For centuries now, allotment of life-giving elements has placed a hard cap on the speed and rapidity of human expansion into the battery. It has, justifiably, favored the largest, most successful worlds and colonies, Charis, Athos, Iophos, and Hellenia, serving them first. We do not accuse Addis of favoritism. For it is Charis primarily that manages distribution of the vital elements you and your ship's mine. Ederis, however, is finished accepting Charis as mediator. For it is our belief that their fruitless attempts to appear neutral to all parties inevitably tips the scale in favor of the status quo. That status quo finds my people locked in a decades-long war with no sign of abatement. Fillion of Charis. We hereby petition for direct access to negotiate for the macro minerals you mine here in Addis. Dulcie, who'd been monitoring the situation, finally saw fit to comment. That was far more polite than I'd have figured, Villian, I wonder if he knows his history. I suspect so, Saraswati answered. If he intended to merely petition, why show up with a fleet of warships? The Triumvirate conferred, each of the three communicating their preference through the bodies of their living vessels an almost telepathic commune convened in subspace. When the meeting of their minds concluded, Fillion sent Venegar the following response. Your petition is noted and rejected, Venegar of Eterus. You may redress your grievances with Charis, or find your Phosphorus elsewhere. The Eteran Commodore did not respond. Soon after the message was received, one of Venegar's ships passed through the Heliosphere into the system. Addis was a graveyard for conventional ships. There were several theories as to the exact physics of the death trap, but the leading theory was that in the recent cosmic past, a collision had occurred between one of the inner four rocky bodies and a small, fast moving rogue planet. The violent collision resulted in both planets spilling their hard metal innards throughout the system so violently that the area hadn't nearly begun to settle since the initial collision. Addis was left a conflagration of clouds, dust, debris, and disorderly asteroids innumerable, constantly blasting into each other, making any sort of predictive pattern about their trajectories all but impossible. Most of the collisions were modest, but frequently enough, massive asteroids would connect with incredible velocities, shooting out chunks of glowing, orange, heat-laden metal and rock. The first of Venegar's warships entered the system at low sublight, like a bather into cold waters, testing it seemed. It was difficult for Fillion and Saraswathi to witness the spectacle without interference from dust and debris. They relied on Dulcie's projection. They hadn't witnessed anything like it before. Saraswathi was the only one of the three old enough to remember the initial wreck of the prospecting parties who thought, as Venegar seemed to think, that it might be safe to venture into the dark outer reaches of the system, where Addis's starlight was almost entirely obscured, by the debris cloud of the inner system. The darkness made for a deceptive death trap. That outer debris field was far more diffuse than the inner clouds, but it was as deadly as it was dark. Saraswathi's math suggested hull breach within the first four hours, complete decompression within the first twelve, and total destruction before the ship even got within striking distance of the gas giant Shara, where Dulcie and her fleet were sheltering at the pole awaiting a window for payload delivery. By hour four, as the Ateran cruiser approached the system's original belt of asteroids and ice dwarfs, it picked up speed, all but ensuring its inability to avoid a large strike. Suicide, Dulcie said. It must be remotely piloted. Within the hour, the ship collided with a hidden rock in the darkness, pulverizing it to a cloud of mangled metal and fire. Among the debris field... Dulcie witnessed a spread of thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of spherical orbs spilling out into the outer reaches of the system. He is making war on us, Villian said. Mines? Some form of sabotage, certainly, Saraswati said. Over the course of the next several hours, Venegar deployed a salvo of nine more of these mine laden vessels along the perimeter of the system. Saraswati processed their possible spread, which, over time, Were certain to diffuse into the system, like an ink stain into a puddle of clear liquid. Complete perfusion. Would you talk, Fillion of Charis, came a message from Venegar. He is smart, Fillion said to his two partners. Not a fool, this military commander. Fillion did not answer him immediately. The Triumvirs spent the time theorizing and strategizing. No doubt you are trying to guess what has been deployed into your system, Fillion of Charis. A second message came from Venegar after a short time. The devices I've deployed are a very effective, nearly indestructible type of heat mine. Simple, crude, and deadly. We understand your mining process, and we know that you're likely calculating the odds that one of your ships will encounter one of these devices before they become gravitationally bound to the rocks in the sea of debris that surrounds you. The odds of that happening are minuscule. That is not their purpose. Eventually, the odds of your mining ships consuming these mines is certain. I assure you, I can continue to make the odds of that less favorable for you. Or, I could ensure, that when you do begin to consume them, the mines are inert. We do not wish to harm you or stop the vital service your work provides to the peoples of Charis and the Battery. We only wish to negotiate terms. Your refusal left us no choice but to change the equation. The Addis system, meanwhile is hereby under an embargo that will cease when negotiations are complete. I await your response. Day 2 The Triumvirs relied mostly on Saraswati's tremendous capacity for calculation as they continued to discuss their options. She was one of the first ten copies of Saraswati Prime, a direct progeny of Mykon, who had given her line abilities in fractal analysis and quantum computing that made her perfect for functions such as Addis. Her computing firepower, along with Fillion's genius for design and Dulcie's gift for engineering systems, had made mining the system possible. It wasn't just the fact that there was phosphorus in abundance that made the system so attractive. It was that the planetary collision had liberated that rare and most valuable life-giving element from the crust of the planets that had collided. Phosphorus was now present in trace amounts on every rock in the system in the form of accreted dust. But their living ships weren't engineered to be dust collectors. They were miners, and they mined by consuming the rocks themselves. Filian and Saraswathi had created the kobolds from scratch, engineering their existence for the demands of the environment. A fierce exoskeleton, a soft, highly vascular, spongy subdermis that immediately self-sealed and repaired all but the most massive breaches of the outer shell, which also converted sunlight into energy. The neural tissues, threaded throughout the body of each cobalt, worked as a conduit for the three operators, a hive mind that serviced the operators, not the engines. And these bodies were master manipulators of magnetic fields, allowing the clusters of cobalts to deflect many of the mostly metallic rocks in their vicinity. Between this magnetic push and pull, and the clever manipulation of the gravitational pull of the asteroids themselves, Saraswati could reliably steer each of their three fleets around the system slowly but with relative precision. They were not designed to deal with space warfare in any way, though, for who could have perceived a need for a defense in an impenetrable field that only the kobolds could negotiate? The creatures were certainly not designed to withstand a mine blast from within. If Venegar was earnest about the threat, it would be a serious problem for mining operations over the centuries. Even more, Dulcie and Phillian were humans, and their bodies, though mere dormant vessels for their projected consciousnesses, were preserved in a kind of indefinite stasis aboard their cobalts. They could be killed. Saraswati had been sharing her work, trying to project the progress of the minds as they dissipated into the clouds of Addis. There was no emergency here. It would be months before the first of these minds could even theoretically reach the inner system, which seemed a strange strategy in warfare where timelines were emergent in hours and days. Still, after careful consideration, the Triumvirs decided that the situation required further conversation, especially in light of the threat of further action by Venegar. He got his conclave, after all. Fillion sent the following message. Venegar of Eterus, this unwarranted aggression is impermissible. Any further terroristic threats will leave us no choice but to recommend to Cheris that Ederis be removed entirely from the supply chain. We are willing to hear your proposal for altering our distribution structure, but we will not alter to your benefit under threat of force." They did not hear back from Venegar for days. Day 7 Venegar did not release any more mines over the first week of the embargo nor did he issue any further demands until the seventh day. By then, the Triumvirs had processed probable expectations for the Ateran Commodore. Saraswati predicted that he would press for a 25% increase in allotment, a figure consistent with optimistic growth for the Ateran territories. Meanwhile, they were contending with the possibility that vinegar couldn't be placated. For fear of the mines, Dulcie was now unwilling to direct her kobold to eat. I can't get blown up by a mine if my ship doesn't consume them, Dulcie said. That is an effective survival strategy in the short term, Saraswathi said. But the reduction in productivity over centuries will be significant. Plus, it marks out your cobalt as different. Venegar will certainly identify your ship as important. He may be able to target it in some other way. I don't wish to be blown to little bits from the inside, Dulcie said. The kobolds we can lose. Dulcie's pod was on its way back from the mid-system. The further she could get herself from the mines, she thought, the better. She'd already loaded her most recent payload into the mass driver hidden in one of the gas giant Shiraz's large rocky moons. Dulcie was just waiting for the window Saraswathi had calculated would appear later that evening. They had no reason to think Venegar had any knowledge of that shipment. Then a message from Venegar came in. My terms are as follows right of first refusal, up to one billion units each, per year, for the four smaller factions, Eterus, the Lettered Systems, the Independent Systems, and the Trasp Protectorate. What remains will be divided equally amongst Dresen System, Hellenia, and Cheris. Venegar's request was a direct inversion of the prior arrangement, a seemingly absurd provocation. Most curious of all, Venegar asked for no advantage over his people's mortal enemies, the Trasp. After consultation, Fillion sent back the following question on behalf of the Triumverse. Should we refuse? Venegar did not answer. Dulcie's pod had only just cleared the moon's gravity when the mass driver inside it launched her pod's payload. It was the culmination of over two years' worth of mining work. Once launched from the moon. The payload typically took seven hours to clear the system's outer reaches, and a subsequent fourteen days to make the journey into interstellar space, where cargo ships from Cheris would receive the cargo, carrying it on to the peoples of the battery systems and beyond. Shortly after Dulcie's payload cleared the heliosphere, two ships from Venegar's blockade broke ranks and turned her neat shipment into a cloud of phosphorus dust. Venegar sent Philean a one-word explanation. Embargo. Then he fell silent again. Day 22 For the Triumvirate, the destruction of an entire shipment was a morale setback more than anything. The loss of one shipment wasn't an event that would manifest in real-world outcomes. The massive, well-ordered societies of the inner battery could find ways to mitigate the temporary loss of Addis. Lawns, gardens, and trees could have their matter repurposed perhaps for up to another decade before population growth would need to be curtailed. The embargo was more dire for Ederis and the Tras Protectorate, though, where the war was responsible for destruction of biomass in large quantities over short time frames. The embargo was, however, at the very least, a change in the status quo Venegar had spoken of when he first encroached upon Addis. and the glacial pace of conversation between him and the Triumvirs, spoke either to his patience or to his willingness to put his people's own supply of life-giving macrominerals at risk in order to gain greater access in the long run. There was plenty of time for speculation as the three miners awaited the arrival of their regular formation of cargo carriers from Cheris. Soon enough, the outside systems would discover that Addis's latest shipment had been blasted to dust by Venegar's small fleet of Ateran warships. Day 157. By month five, mining hadn't completely ceased, but Fillion's pod was chock-full, and Saraswati's pod was well on its way. Dulcie continued to send out her empty kobolds, further from her own vessel than usual, for they were all still uncertain of the blast radius of the mines. This sparser grouping meant the kobolds Dulcie sent out were more exposed, but that distance was a trade-off Dulcie was happy to make for her own safety. The only reason they were mining at all during the embargo was for the moment the blockade was lifted with the hope they'd be able to make up the loss all at once venegar seemed determined to prevent that from happening there had been one brief interaction between the two parties with venegar inquiring whether Fillion had changed his mind and Fillion insisting that he hadn't and wouldn't give in to the aterran's demands all three of the triumvirs were surprised more than anything And how long it had taken Charis and the Dreesens to respond to Venegar's aggression. Five months had passed and a shipment totally lost, and still, the major systems had done nothing to speak of to ensure the safe and steady flow of phosphorus back to the inner battery. On the afternoon of day 157 of the embargo, that changed, when a massive fleet jumped out and began to encircle Venegar's ships at the outskirts of the system. The Ateran did not respond, he merely allowed the larger arriving fleet to surround him, over 200 ships strong, from Hellenia, Athos, Iophos, and Charis, all well-outfitted warships built for modern warfare. When the fleet had encircled the system, and thus Venegar, the Eteran commander sent the fleet the following message. We did not come here to fight, but to negotiate. Fear not, peaceful neighbors. You will not have to scratch your pretty ships on our account. A tremendous explosion then erupted in the inner third of the system, a remote detonation of one of the mines. It was a far bigger blast than any of the Triumvirate had expected, powerful enough to decimate a pod of kobolds in close configuration. Venegar then transmitted the following, We did not intend to negotiate without leverage. Thousands of mines are armed and seated throughout the system. Fillion of Charis has our terms. We would be happy to deactivate the mines should we come to an acceptable arrangement for distribution. Should our ships be fired upon, though, I assure you the Addis miners will suffer the consequences visited on us tenfold. Then Venegar went silent again, leaving the Triumvirs to explain the situation to the newly arrived allies, all of whom were indignant at the Ateran's terms, his presumptuousness, his boldness, and his casual willingness to disrupt the order of the entire structure of civilization. Any significant further human progress in that region of the galaxy depended upon Addis, and here was this one Terran Commodore flouting the will of humanity. They were shocked, and they were nearly as shocked at how calmly the besieged miners of Addis seemed to be coping with the situation. For us, this is day 157 of the embargo, Fillion told them. It's difficult to maintain a certain level of anger so long. Shall we begin discussions? That question set off a fierce debate amongst the Allies. After several more hours listening to the back and forth among them, Fillion and the Triumvirs tuned them out. Day 162 Sometime during the afternoon of the fifth day of that particular debate, Fillion received a message from Venegar. This could take a while, Fillion of Cheris, S-71, C-13, N-91. Is he joking? Dulcie said. The man wants a game of sabaka with you, after threatening to blast us into oblivion? Perhaps for him this is only business, Saraswathi said. Would you permit me to make a suggestion, Filian? Certainly. F-04, Q-88, M-33. I can start a visualization of the table. It's been a long time since we played a decent game. Very well, Fillion said. Send him the rejoinder. Day 169 The Athosians had to have their way, of course. They announced to Philian that they would not proceed with any negotiations with the Ateran Commodore before first opening official diplomatic channels through Ithaca. They sent for an ambassador while they awaited official word through Eterus that Venegar himself had been cleared to negotiate on behalf of the Ateran systems and wasn't acting on his own rogue impulse. The Sabaka game had cleared its fifth frame. Fillion and the Triumvirs were up by one frame and had discovered a most worthy opponent in Venegar of Ederis. Day 214 After another six weeks without any diplomatic progress, Dulcie's pot of kobolds was stuffed to their jowls. Mining operations had officially ceased in Addis. The Athosian envoy had yet to arrive. Venegar had tied the game's tally with a ten-stick run in the final wave of the 216th frame of the longest-lasting Sabaka game Fillion and Dulcie had played in four centuries. Saraswathi declared Venegar of Edoras a genuine prodigy. Day 268 Mid-Morning as Filion, Dulcie, and Saraswathi were contemplating Venegar's rejoinder to his opening salvo in the 217th frame of their match, the Athosian envoy finally arrived. She sent messages of greetings to the ship commanders and representatives from other worlds. Then she sent a message to Filian, announcing that negotiations could commence. Filian sent her a cursory message, welcoming the Athosian delegation to Addis. It is a breathtakingly beautiful system to see with my own eyes, she responded. From a safe distance, of course. Quite so, Fillion wrote back. Next, she wrote a greeting and a proposal to begin negotiations with Venegar. He was busy discussing with Fillion the finer points of the Harridan sequence, which he'd successfully defended against twice over the course of the previous week. As you may soon find out, Fillion, Venegar remarked, the Haridan sequence does have its weaknesses when it fails. Were you planning on responding to the Athosian envoy? Filian asked. Perhaps sometime before you employ your next gambit? I will respond to her in 99 standard days, Filian, which should give us time for roughly 90 or a 100 more frames before the talks commence. 99 days? That's oddly specific. It's how long the Aethosians kept us waiting. Seems only fair. K thirty five, I nineteen, L twenty two. Mind your left flank, Filian of Charis. Day three hundred sixty-seven. Some two days to the year after first arriving outside Addis, Venegar of Eterus began the negotiations with representatives of the major systems of the inner battery. Filion, Dulcie, and Saraswati monitored the ongoing talks, delegating responsibility to the diplomats. Their preference was only to keep the phosphorus flowing. For their part, it didn't matter how much went to which civilization, as long as humanity continued to expand into the galaxy. Whatever animosity they'd felt toward Venegar for his initial aggression had largely faded, replaced with admiration for his cleverness and boldness. They had come to view his threats as strategic and impersonal, similar gambits to his Sabaka moves which, even after a year, still surprised with their breadth of vision and creativity. In negotiations, Venegar seemed eminently reasonable and fair, at least as it came to his enemies. Though his demands of the inner battery were ludicrous, the Athosians especially took note of the fact that whatever he demanded for Edoras, he demanded as well for his Trasp enemies, a level footing for both, as well as the Indies and the Letters. Still, right of first refusal for the outer battery systems was not acceptable to the much larger civilizations whose populations were expanding regularly, and whose people were not wasting their phosphorus through the willful destruction of each other's cities. Venegar took issue with that characterization. Do you suppose we Terrans are enjoying these three decades of slaughter brought to us by our Trasp enemies? Two generations now of ceaseless conflict... We use our phosphorus in the struggle for survival. In that process, nothing is wasted. Such an insult will not stand. Later that day, after breaking off talks with the unified fleet, Venegar was back at the Sabaka game, employing the hard line a classic dilatory tactic commonly enacted to frustrate an impatient opponent. That is a bold strategy for a mortal to use against us, Saraswati noted. He does realize our nature, does he not? I would say he's fully aware, Fillion said. Not much slips past the ken of Venegar of Edoras. Day 409 Insults forgiven, talks finally resumed. No one asked Venegar how long he was prepared to boycott the negotiations. But when he returned to the negotiating table, the Allies took it as a sign that his tolerance for the stalemate was not indefinite. After eight months of idle standoff, though, the number of ships surrounding his fleet had dwindled. It had become clear that the chance of Venegar's embargo morphing into a hot confrontation was vanishingly small. None of the allies of the inner battery were experienced in combat, so their clear preference was to avoid it. Venegar, too, surrounded and outgunned as he was, seemed to prefer to talk. Now it seemed, he was willing to set aside prior insults and go forward. Fillian and Company had taken a ten-frame lead at the virtual sabaka table. During the pause in negotiations, the Athosians had led talks amongst the Allies on reasonable concessions to propose to Venegar in the event negotiations resumed. They offered Venegar three options deemed acceptable by the Allied systems. Venegar listened to all three proposals, promising to consider each one carefully before giving his answer. The Triumvirs noted amongst themselves that an end to the embargo seemed to be in sight, in the view of the Allies, it had come none too soon. They were entering their second year without a steady stream of vital macro-minerals. Soon the shortage would begin to affect the plans of countless branches of governments, of private enterprises, even of families whether they understood it or not. Then to the shock of Filian, Dulcie, and Saraswathi, Venegar did something he hadn't done in a full year of Sabaka frames. He neglected to press a clear advantage, and pulled back. Day 467 The second Athosian proposal proved to be the breakthrough the Allies had been hoping for. They held daily talks with Venegar, reviewing alterations and counter-proposals. He was a military commander, accustomed to a certain level of urgency and efficiency. But according to the diplomats, he was a quick study in their world, brilliant and incisive with details, calculating second, third, and even fourth order effects to policy proposals often anticipating Allied objections before they even materialized, he was so sharp that even the normally fastidious Athosians took even more time to be cautious, looking for the move they missed, hidden deep in the minutiae. On the day the initial treaty finally reached an acceptable state to all parties, the Athosian ambassador sent word back to the battery that the embargo's end was imminent, lacking only signatures, The Athosian envoy sent for a dignitary from the government with high enough clearance to sign a treaty of such significance. Soon thereafter, they received word that the Minister of Worlds would arrive at Addis in two weeks' time. Due to the nature of negotiations, instigated by force as they were, the treaty would lack the normal ceremony and publicity usually associated with such consequential events. In this case, the signatories wouldn't even board a single vessel. A simple digital document would be passed around for virtual verification and approval. Then the matter would be finished. Do you suppose you can catch me in two weeks? Fillion asked Venegar, who was now only three frames behind. Do you suppose you can stop me from catching you, Fillion of Cheris? He responded. Yet Venegar, with the urgency, throughout subsequent days, seemed to be employing nothing but dilatory tactics that would only draw out that 430th frame to the point that it became the longest single wave of their year-long match. Day 475 All was quiet around the outskirts of Addis, as the various parties awaited the arrival of the Athosian minister. The mood of the signatories seemed relatively joyous to the triumvirs. Their communications were full of smiling dignitaries, speaking of their relief, to finally be returning to their homes and families. Venegar's communications seemed almost completely unchanged. Phillian chalked it up to his martial disposition. The Commodore would not allow his mind to lower its guard until the deal was officially sealed. Only then would he make his final moves on the Sabaka table, congratulate Filion on a series well played, and retire to Eterus, presumably to continue his people's fight for survival. The Athosian minister was still not expected for another six days. So it was quite unexpected when a large merchant-class Percy frigate jumped into the space just outside the Addis system. The vessel displayed letters' colors on their transponder. It was the Undersecretary of Interstellar Relations himself, arrived from Alpha Richard, and before even making the slightest attempt at pleasantries, he demanded a copy of the treaty to review. He also stated in forceful and colorful language that no one had authorized Venegar of Eterus to speak for the letters, much less all the outer battery And if you think the Trasp are going to honor a treaty negotiated for them by Edoras, he said, pausing to shake his head. Well, he continued, that's some oversight, to say the least. On the afternoon of the arrival of the envoy from the letters, Venegar began to tighten the field around Fillion's right flank on their virtual sabaka table. A pincer maneuver, even a genius military commander of the highest rank could find no flaw with. In three hours, Fillion had lost a frame he'd seemed destined to win. Saraswathi was in awe. Dulcie was angry. She'd been warning the other two for almost twelve hours about the very three loose sticks Venegar ultimately attacked. When word came from the envoy of the letters that the Trasp were on their way, the Athosians recalled their warships to stand guard. Day 518 Finally, the Trasp arrived. To everyone's surprise, there was no show of force. The expectation among the Allies was that the Protectorate would at least send a force equal in numbers to Venegar's so that the battlefield at least appeared equal. But the Trasp, Venegar explained to the Triumvirs, knew the difference between a battlefield and a negotiating table. The simple, austere passenger cruiser they sent gave nothing away, signaling little apart from their clear grasp of the situation. The Athosians and their allies represented enough of a deterrent to Venegar that it would be impossible for him to lash out against them militarily. And the Trasp knew, perhaps better than any, that Atterrans were not irrational actors. Atterrans were strategists. The Trasp representative was a retired general entering his second term as president of Darby Constellation on Thune, a cylinder group with an unknown population, guessed to be in the high hundreds of millions. His name was Ediston McKenna, and he had a reputation for directness. He wasted little time living up to that reputation. Under no circumstances will there be any signing of any document until the negotiations begin anew, from scratch, he declared to the Athosian envoy in their first meeting. A briefing would surely be in order before making such sweeping declarations, the Athosian envoy responded. Mark one thing for certain, McKenna stated. If the Aterans negotiated the deal, then it is a poor deal for Trasp. They are killers first and tricksters second. You never know about the trick until you're dead. You've read the documents, surely, the envoy from Hellenia stated. Venegar has insisted on equal footing for Etteris and Trasp every step of the way. Even more to be suspicious of, McKenna insisted. Believe there is an advantage somewhere in the appearance of equality. The deception will be in the context, or the application of equal parts. I expect the Aterans to select only a fair rope to hang us by. Later that afternoon, looking over the Sabaka board at the latest frame, quickly unfolding in Venegar's favor once more, Fillion noted how in hindsight, it was as though Venegar had known all along that eventually the Trask would arrive and disrupt negotiations. They'd bring their unique perspectives with them, characterized by what was either well-warranted caution or outright paranoia. The trouble was that one could not be sure which stance was the correct one until history played out. Even Saraswathi couldn't process an accurate prediction of such things. Fillion of Cheris, vinegar, wrote to him that day. How long do you suppose you can continue to hold your lead? Not nearly long enough, Dulcie remarked to Fillion and Saraswathi, considering I no longer think we even know the real score. Day 767. Frustrations mounted over the months following the Trasp's arrival at Addis, where the Athosians and the Inner Systems found a willing negotiating partner in Venegar. They found nothing but suspicion, obstinacy, and quite often volatility from the Trasp representative, usually when other members of the negotiating team assumed something like good faith on Venegar's part. McKenna so distrusted his Terran counterpart, that he insisted all communications with Venegar take place in writing, mediated through the negotiating body. Never would he even address Venegar directly in writing. It was always tangential, the Ateran delegation, or some such designation. That's the only way to negotiate with an Ateran, McKenna insisted. It's a lot more difficult to be devious in black and white for all to see. Venegar, once more, proved agreeable to the other envoys by submitting to those terms even stepping back from the negotiations to allow the Trasp to have their say unopposed. Venegar was happy to wait for their terms to come back to him. It was a full eight months from McKenna's arrival before the treaty had been revised and vetted to the point that the Trasp General sanctioned its submission to Venegar. They transmitted it in the middle of the day. Villian, Dulcie, and Saraswathi were stuck in another epic frame with Venegar that seemed destined for a stalemate. As challenging and frustrating as it was to play against a competitor of Venegar's class, Fillion couldn't remember being so engrossed by anything in centuries. The transmission of the treaty came as an interruption they assumed might halt play. To their surprise, no less than ten minutes after receiving the document themselves, Venegar came back at them. I-08, n 9 F-28. Damn, Fillion said, examining the move. Damn! He didn't even take a breath to read the treaty, Dulcie said. Is that frame? Negative, Saraswathi insisted. There's still room to wiggle out the backside and regroup. Aren't you even going to read the treaty, Fillion wrote to Venegar. That will require the proper time and attention, friend, like a good game of sabaka. Day 846 Venegar rejected the trasp version of the treaty outright listing each of the unacceptable advantages his counterpart had attempted to sneak into the document. For each instance Venegar identified, he included practical examples of how the seemingly fair treaty could be applied to Eteris's detriment, at least when compared to his Trasp enemies. I will give careful attention to these problem areas and identify a solution that will be acceptable to my people. Revisions will follow in due time. Later that afternoon, still locked in the most intense game of Sabaka and his centuries-long existence, Fillion received a curious message from Venegar. "'How many friends do you have with you, Fillion of Charis?' "'How could he possibly know that?' Dulcie asked. And no sooner had she articulated the question than Venegar answered his own question with a follow-up to hers. "'You are the greatest player I have ever had the privilege of challenging. However,' I have noted anomalies in your playing style that can only be accounted for by assistance from at least one entirely different player of your caliber. Playing one genius is difficult enough. Playing, I'm guessing three, is something else entirely. Fillion didn't answer at first. The reason for keeping their methods secret, though, had been security. They'd decided at the outset that the less the outside world knew of Addis, the less likely something like Vinegar's Incursion would be. The Triumvirs discussed amongst themselves and decided that such measures were now entirely moot. I am Fillion of Charis, designer of the biological ships that mine this system. With me are Saraswathi-7, one of a handful of artificial beings on Charis in my century, capable of calculating the quantum permutations necessary to build a spacefaring biological being to our specifications. My third partner was my real partner in my human life, Dulcie of Charis. We three are in awe of your strategic genius, Venegar. Two immortals and an artificial, he answered. What a way to spend a millennium, mining phosphorus for a growing population of humans who doubtless take your sacrifice for granted. I suspect this is the most excitement any of you have had since sloughing off your mortal coils, at least for the two of you former mortals anyway. It is a quiet, austere life, Fillion said. A great service to humanity, though. Such services are best paid without regard to the gratitude of others, or the lack thereof. I thank you all regardless, Venegar replied, and I am happy to continue to entertain while the negotiations proceed. I trust the AI Saraswathi is not making moves against me. Only monitoring and suggesting patterns, as I suspect your AI is doing as well. Naturally, Venegar said, but mine is not a famous quant. I'm surprised that I've survived thus far. Shall we continue? Day 916 Venegar's solution to the treaty impasse were elegant and thorough. To the inner battery envoys, his counterpoints and revisions looked eminently reasonable, fair, and equitable. His trasp counterpart, McKenna, found these overtures so reasonable that he hardly trusted his own judgment. There's always a catch, he would tell the others. There always is with eterus McKenna could not help himself. He wrote a further ten revisions into the Compact that favored his people, just to see how Venegar would react. On day 916, when Venegar reviewed McKenna's changes, his response was simply, unacceptable. This exchange set off a debate amongst the envoys that grew contentious and then accusatory. Within hours, McKenna had to remind them all why they were there in the first place, nearly three years after Venegar, the aggressor, had attacked the miners in their cobalt ships. Trasp did not do that, McKenna stated. Venegar did. I seem to be the only one who hasn't forgotten. By all means, though, trust the terrorist first. Day 1452 Venegar, for a time, took a commanding lead in the series. Then Fillion found a weakness in the Ateran's game by exploiting an old gambit variation that was popular in his youth on Cheris perhaps local enough that it had never made it into competitive play, and thus was so obscure it was never recorded in the strategy guides. It wasn't an attack or a trap per se, but more of a hidden defense embedded in the midline. The point was that an opponent would spend time, effort, and resources attacking a front line they perceived as only lightly reinforced, only to find a much stiffer wall behind it once they penetrated. That effort always came at a cost. The pattern quickly became apparent when Venegar lost several games in a row. It wasn't obvious which moves were the killer's, though. Even in hindsight, the cascade downward took a long time to develop from a place that always seemed like a victory. A pyrrhic victory, Venegar muttered as he moved his front into Fillion's midline. Now, the slide. Do you concede? Fillion said. Do me the courtesy of this final bit of education on this cherished gambit, Fillion for I won't fall into it again. How many variations are there on this ploy? Saraswathi quickly did the math. I've been informed there are 1,325 variations, Fillion said, like a fugue, Venegar replied. Fillion couldn't help but think they were in a similar situation with the treaty. Revision after revision, each a variation on a previous phrase, largely keeping the same melody and rhythm, answered by a trasp counterpoint followed by an echo of the original phrase. Well, Fillion, you've drawn within twenty. You'll need another year at least to make up that ground, now that I've figured out your front-line soft spot. Day 1618 The envoys from the Inner Systems, overwhelmed with frustration at McKenna's unwillingness to negotiate in good faith, broke protocol and attempted to cajole him in private. He instead sent back a public tirade. Every time they asked him to articulate his thoughts, he would grow increasingly frustrated and accuse Venegar of orchestrating elements of the negotiations over which he had no control. How is it that we are here now, years from when he began this illegal blockade, and we have seen no Atterran ships arrive to reprovision his ships? This means he came with years of stores stuffed aboard every ship in his fleet. And don't think it's lost on us that these ships though many of which were once good fighting vessels I recognize and remember, they are now ancient and no longer battleworthy. Is it lost on you all that he shows no frustration, no desire from a Commodore to support his side in the fight? I am sick with anxiety being sidelined like this, away from my home nation in a time of war. But Venegar, he is the same every day. There is some objective here. Can you not see that this is what he has wanted all along? That is a baseless and scandalous accusation, General McKenna, Venegar replied. We came prepared to blockade. Our soldiers take every precaution, always preparing for the worst-case scenario. Our people have been equally deprived, starved of phosphorus, as each of the systems gathered here have been. Ederis has negotiated in good faith from day one. To suggest otherwise is yet another insult in an unbroken string of trashed diplomatic offenses. Day 1718 Except for the moves on the Sabaka board, Venegar went silent for 100 days in protest. Pressure was now mounting from Athos, Iophos, and Helenia to reopen the mines. Agriculture was soon going to become seriously affected. Because of the secrecy of the two warring parties, though, little was known about the effects of the embargo on the Ateran worlds and in the Trasp Protectorate. DAY 1,758 The technology of immortality fascinates me, Fillion, Venegar stated one day between moves. How much like the planets and stars have you become? Are the matters of humanity like the movement of the winds and seas for you now? How many Venegars have you passed by? He would talk like that and play a game that one might expect of a philosopher king. At times, Fillion would imagine he was playing Marcus Aurelius, Charlemagne, or Julian Hartsock. The Immortals had evened the score at 731. Meanwhile, the treaty was evolving, or devolving as Venegar protested. Venegar found that as the letters, trasp, and indies bickered, the inner battery took more and more from beneath their squabbling noses than he'd gained from his initial incursion in the first place. He expressed outrage that they were giving away a prize they'd never worked to gain. Every time he spoke, he urged them to end the standoff before they ended up with nothing. Day 1900 The framework for an agreement was in place for what seemed like the hundredth time. 1900 seems like a good round number, Venegar said the day before he agreed in principle to end the embargo. There would be a drawdown of forces from the inner battery systems to ensure safe passage for Venegar's ships. He would pass by the ship's standing guard then transmit codes for the mines that would give the Allies access to the mine's control systems. Then, he would jump back out of the Addy system for good. A rotation of patrol ships representing all four of the major civilizations of the Battery would stand guard at all times henceforth. Venegar horrified the envoys by submitting an additional list of demands after the treaty itself was finalized. Before he saw the list, General McKenna nearly suffered an aneurysm from rage. He grew less and less red as he carefully reviewed each demand. The first demand was a standing archive, accessible to the triumvirs, to be updated yearly by each of the civilizations they serviced with minerals. In Venegar's words, They give us life. The least we can do to thank them is to tell them what we're doing with it once a year. Second, the Inner Battery series crowned a champion every four years, both in the individual and team divisions. These were the best Sabaka players in the galaxy. Part of the honor that went with that title henceforth would be playing the miners in an exhibition match at Addis. At first, Venegar heard that the Athosians had scoffed at the idea that the most famous players would find any kind of challenge out here. It wasn't evident that anyone apart from Venegar understood what Filian, Dulcie, and Saraswathi were. When word filtered back to Athos, the players apparently thought they'd be playing ordinary miners. Venegar transmitted a 20-move sequence from match 419 he thought was one of the most elegant sequences he'd ever seen. It subsequently became known as the Bimini Triad, providing instant proof of the quality of play they'd find out at Addis. The third demand was a concession from Fillion and Dulcie that they would seek replacements and retire from phosphorus mining at a time in the future of their choosing, in Venegar's words, when the winds and the tides seemed right. When the finalized treaty document came to him, McKenna hated that he thought it, but he couldn't help but recognize how much ground they'd conceded to Athos and Hellenia in the years of seemingly ceaseless negotiations. Still though, by then, there was no getting it back. After five years starved of phosphorus, their new share would be nearly double than when Venegar's blockade began, Trasp had no choice but to sign. The humans of the galaxy breathed a sigh of relief on the evening of day 1900, when Venegar of Eterus returned the Treaty of Addis, signed and dated. Along with the document itself, he transmitted the first key sequence for the mines as an added act of good faith. Day 1931. Venegar's warships finally moved out of position and began to cluster around his flagship. Fillion, Dulcie, and Saraswathi couldn't help but feel that they'd soon be missing a genuine friend. An odd friendship, to be sure, forged under unusual circumstances. But Filian thought that was appropriate, for they had perhaps the most unusual job in all the universe, shepherds of a peculiar flock they'd drawn into existence themselves, written in codes of mathematical equations and genetic sequences so profoundly complicated, only a trifecta like themselves could have brought it into being, and they were fated like a strange trio of Greek gods, to cycle through their own particular beautiful purgatory, to service life, to service the progression of human civilization throughout the battery. They had never thought of it that way until Venegar had put it to them so. You are now cosmic creatures, my friends, he said. What a gift to have shared such a portion of my life with you. He was a man of war, conscious of being recorded by foes and allies, and by history so a flat presentation of what was an otherwise emotional message was all they got. As agreed, his final act before departing was to transmit access codes for the remaining mines to the keepers of the system. Then, Venegar of Eterus jumped away. The watchkeepers relayed to Fillion what they presumed was Venegar's mistake minutes later. When Saraswathi attempted to access the mines herself, she couldn't help but remark to the others, I always had my suspicions clever strategist that he is. Filian and Dulcie couldn't help but smile at their worthy opponent. The mines had only one input command, transmit data, and no input command for detonate. When the Triumvirs input the command to transmit their data, Saraswati received five years of telemetry data for nearly a hundred thousand inert location beacons. A perfect map of the flow patterns of the Adi's cloud, over the five years they'd matched wits with the most formidable strategist of a Zeebok. Day 47,925. According to the armistice agreement settled at the conclusion of the West Battery War, after half a century passing without aggression, Edoras and the Tras Protectorate began to open records for the war era in stages. Fillion, Dulcy and Saraswathi had not yet arrived at the day when the wind and tides seemed right for them to retire from their cosmic post at Addis. They still relished updates from the battery's archives, especially any news on the burgeoning populations that had exploded in the outer systems, especially in the post-war era. Saraswathi was the one who noticed the anomaly, of course, deep in an obscure and seemingly meaningless data dump of Ateran records from nearly 50,000 days prior. Many of the files, three decades into the West Battery War, reflected a society on the brink of collapse. However, somehow, during a five-year period when no phosphorus was recorded as entering their system, their population had a sudden, inexplicable spike, as well as record harvests commensurate with the growth in agricultural production that should have been impossible. The project was called Amphora. The secret mine was located so far out beyond the boundary systems that a century later no humans had even visited the hidden system since. The gross tonnage in the low trillions of amphorae exactly matched the volume of phosphorus required for a five-year spike in population growth. The historical record could not have been clearer. If not for that vital microboom in population relative to their trasp enemies, eterus seventy years before the armistice, surely would have lost the war. Villian, Dulcie, and Saraswathi knew immediately Amphora had been Venegar, the peerless strategist, exploiting a five-year cache of phosphorus that his enemies knew nothing about by grinding every other human civilization to a halt. Over a century later, without so much as a footnote in the historical record, the Ateran people carried on, more oblivious of Venegar's gambit than they were of the miners of Addis. Moves like that had always been vinegar of Ederis's signature. One would never know how they'd been fooled until the master trickster himself was long dead. Embargo This has been an original story, written and read by P.E. Rowe. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the story. I'd like to thank Sane Canadian for suggesting today's topic, Bioships and Space Whales, which won last month's Story Topic poll. I'd also like to thank everyone who suggested topics and voted. If you're new to the channel and would like to vote on future story topics, you can find them on the channel's community tab, where I try to hold a topic poll once a month. If you've got a story topic that you'd love to see become a story on the channel, please let me know in the comments below. If you'd like to be notified when a new poll or a new story goes live, you can do so by subscribing and clicking on the notification bell. This will also help to support the channel. I do my best to put out the best possible sci-fi story I can every week with the goal of reaching as wide an audience as possible, and would sure appreciate your subscription if you haven't already. Next week, we'll be back with another new story on the topic of mobile cities. If you can't wait till then, there's plenty more stories to explore on the channel's homepage and on my website, RowLit.com. Thanks for joining us for this month's audience-selected topic. Much more to come soon. This has been P.E. Row, and I hope to see you next time.